0: If you've been with us this fall, we've been walking through some of the key words in the New Testament um, as a way to kind of frame some truth around uh, some words of old to, to kind of really cultivate what they mean in our own time. And so Advent, as you know, many of you guys know, we light the four candles, hope, joy, Hope, peace, joy, and love, and so these are our themes leading into Christmas in a couple weeks, and why not start with an animated video to kind of get the things rolling, because this does a way better job than I ever would, so check this out. All right, always hard to follow the animated videos. I know I'm not as interesting, but um, so important to understand that in the first century, when we read about Jesus being the Prince of Peace, most of us evangelical kids nod our head, Right? Because this is something we've known and experienced in in our experience in growing up in the way of Jesus. There was, in its time, another prince of peace. His name was Augustus. The the label, the title uh, in the Pax Romana, this, this way in which Caesar was ultimately trying to bring peace, was that Augustus, or Caesar, was the prince of peace. And so we know that there's these drop-the-mic moments that the New Testament has over the culture of its day because what we pick up and read when we read the authors of the New Testament writing about the Prince of Peace being King Jesus it is that drop the mic type of moment. It is a, it is a proverbial finger in the, the face of the Roman Empire. There's this subversion happening that sometimes we don't pick up, uh, maybe from Sunday school, but is deep and, and really important for us, this idea of peace. It's not just the absence of, absence of war. One of the Places and spaces we see peace in its fullness is obviously the garden, the Hebrew creation narrative. When we pick this up and when we open this up, we see that it's not just the absence of war, it is complete restoration, complete fusion. God in rhythm with his people, God in rhythm with the earth, and that fusion together, those three things working together. And so we want to feel the weight at Christmas time. We want to feel the weight when we light the the peace candle that what Jesus has come to do is so upside down. He is the prince of reconciliation, the one that reconciles. And we know Caesar did this, but ultimately Caesar did this through violence, right? Right? If you know anything about the Pax Romana, the Roman Empire, the way they brought peace was usually through the sword. If you didn't bow kind of to the empire and the imperial kind of way of worship, you were probably left on the outside or you would lose your life in many cases. And yet Jesus comes in the most peculiar of ways. And I think one of the texts that I think is important for us to wrestle through when we talk about this idea of peace and it running through the Bible is Jesus' teachings on this in the New Testament in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible and you wanna open with me, we're gonna be in Matthew chapter five, is where we're gonna be. If you know about the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' most formative and fundamental teachings. It is a series of teachings collected together that Jesus is teaching his disciples in his ministry. And peace is certainly more than just the absence of conflict and war. But if Jesus came as the Prince of Peace, as the embodied one, uh, John would pick up and say that Jesus literally tabernacled himself among us. He brought his presence. He brought himself to us. And he is the Prince of Peace. Then what does this mean for his followers? What does this mean for you and I if Jesus is the prince of reconciliation, the one that redeems and restores all things? Think about that, just the, just the pulse, the beauty, the rhythm of that, that God hasn't left us at a distance but came into our story. This is what Christmas is about, and he didn't leave us at a distance, but he is renewing and restoring all things. It means that you and I are not off the hook if you are a follower of Jesus, And this is a a very important passage of Scripture that actually leads us as the Jesus community to a way in which we embody peace. Listen to this. This is upside down. This is subversive. Sometimes we miss this. Verse 38, listen to what Jesus said. He said, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, as they do, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. People of peace. Jesus here is actually quoting Exodus 2124 and Leviticus 2420 and He is, what he is doing, and many of you know this, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving his antithesis, the antithesis of the understanding of the law, right? So if you know, Israel was shaped around these Old Testament laws, and now Jesus is coming like many rabbis would in the first century, and he is giving his interpretation of this law as the great teacher. And we know he's more than teacher, but this was part of what he embodied. And what he's doing is... He is countering the understanding of Torah for first century Jews with his own kingdom ethics. He is giving the people a greater vision of what uh, the Old Testament law uh, in its completion in him is actually saying. So you may know this. uh, In the Roman Empire, there was this, this thing called lex talionis for some of you schooled history people. It was the law of retaliation, baby. Right? And you even feel it in the impulses of the Torah. It included capital punishment, so life for life, and corporal punishment, tooth for tooth. And so you would, if you would have been a young Jew, would have grown up around an understanding of this law. And by the way, the law is not a bad thing. It's not something we we push against necessarily. Uh, It was, I think, a, a boundary in the mess and muck of a people trying to sort things out under God. It was a boundary for them, but we also know that Jesus comes to give his interpretation of the law, a new way of living. So if there's something counter in the Old Testament and Jesus kind of fulfills that in his own teachings, what do we point to? point to Jesus' teachings on it. And Jesus comes here with a kingdom vision. And that kingdom vision, because he is the Prince of Peace, what better thing to talk about on Peace, Advent 2, on Peace Sunday, than non-resistant love? Jesus actually ends the Mosaic command to show no pity in the Old Testament, the Mosaic command, and places orders on us today, those of us that are his followers, to be merciful, to embody peace, to be these reconcilers in the world. And there are actually practical implications for this. First of all, Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. Woe. N.T. Wright translates to this as don't use violence to resist evil. Another way maybe to translate this is be ready for an act of grace. What Jesus is actually doing here is he is denouncing resistance. That the kingdom will not trade. If you are a kingdom person in this room, we will not trade in retribution because people will, we will live justly, lovingly, we'll live peacefully with one another is the great uh, 20th century theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, nothing like Christmas with Bonhoeffer, right? He says this, evil will become powerless when it finds no opposing object. Evil will become powerless when it finds no opposing object. No resistance, but instead is willingly born and suffered. Evil meets an opponent for which it has no match. Jesus' point here in the teaching that he gives is that his followers respond to the other with non-resistant, life-transforming love. People of peace. The great prince of peace, comes. Now, I know this is, this is whacked out. Is this not whacked Have you been reading the news recently? Like, have you flipped on Twitter? I know most of us on Friday had Twitter going all day looking to see if Shohei Atani would come to the Blue Jays. And of course, being a Toronto sports fan, that would never happen. Nothing, nothing good ever happens. Has anybody ever not won in their life? Is this like free for me, free therapy here? Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's okay. It's okay. Sports is beautiful and it ruins lives. It's beautiful. You know, if you turn on the, the news, you obviously know we're in a moment right now where there's a lot of things going on. And even in our own culture, the underbelly of it, so we create this kind of faux utopia. But if you know underneath that violence is very much predicated in our, our world and in our context, I know we're not American. I know sometimes we push ourselves off as the polite Canadians, but it is all around us. And Jesus, the master teacher, because he was, a te- he was more than a teacher, but he was a thought-provoking rabbi who came with things in the first century and gave examples of things to grab a hold of, what he does is he actually gives four examples in the text around this non-resistance. Four examples. He gives four examples how to behave non-resistantly to evil people. And what I love is that these examples are not far-fetched. They're actually examples that emerge from the concrete experiences of those who would have been in subjection to Rome. If you are a first-century Jew, even think about the disciples listening to Jesus' teachings. They have Caesar over them in the background, right? They are in subjection to this, and Jesus comes with this way, and his way is grace beyond retribution. That there's social customs in their day, and Jesus is actually, I- I- in this space, going to blow their minds with what it looks like to be a person of peace in this world. One says this. Actually, I need a volunteer. You want to help me right? You want to come up? Okay. This is great. So he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, <laughs> right? So... The point is this, we read that and we go, okay, yeah, like, we know this, right? The flannel board stuff, he's like sweating under his arms, I love this. But the flannel board stuff says, well, yeah, of course, Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. What we don't realize in Greco-Roman society is that it was an honor-shame society. Actually, you should know that because I talk about that a lot Uh, around the context of the New Testament. It was very honor-shame. And a backhanded slap was not just a slap, Right? So if I'm slapping him and I'm hitting him with my backhand, right, there's this image and it would have, they would have felt it in their bones in the first century that this is more than just a slap, it is an insult. Actually in the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition of uh, the, the scripture, it talks about how a backhanded slap was paid with a double fine um, if you were caught doing this more than, than a normal slap. And so Jesus says, instead of striking back, and so you get the picture here of just like a backhanded slap, instead of striking back, which would have been just listen, that would have been justifiable through equal retribution in Moses' no-mercy law, Jesus actually creates an almost laughable, this would have been laughable in the first century, this scene of grace. Followers of Jesus, take the backhanded shame, and we, what do we do? We turn the other side cheek. I just wanted to make you nervous. I don't know why, great. but that's yeah, <laughs> good. You, yeah, give him a hand. I'll clap for him or something. I don't know. That was great. Okay, so, so this is about shame. This is about honor and shame. This isn't just about a slap in the face. This is about the depth of Jesus saying, when they slap you, you turn the other cheek, and we know this because Jesus talks about the right cheek if you are to slap somebody like that, like Ryan was there, you'd be hitting them on the right cheek. you turn uh, for the other one, a backhanded slap. So Jesus begins to cultivate that. Then he says this, if anyone wants to sue you, right? And he talks about uh, the giving of the cloak. Now, it, what, we, what we may not understand is that men wore two levels of clothing in the first century, an outer cloak and then an inner shirt, I know we got all sorts of threads today and we have an outfit for every single day, but basically what they wore was a coat and a shirt. And Jesus says, if someone sues you for your shirt, he then urges his followers to go further and actually give them their coat. So if someone wants your shirt, okay, give them your coat or your cloak or your robe as well. Now, Okay, so you're thinking one for the other. Okay, basically I'm giving everything that I have. It's more than this, right? Because the coat or the robe was not only used as a cover for clothing, it was also a sleeping blanket in the first century. There were actually laws in the Old Testament that prohibited taking the robe for somebody else's robe for a length of time and it's because it wasn't just something that covered their bodies, it was actually necessary as a blanket to sleep. So Jesus says, actually, if the person suing you goes for what's legal for your shirt, Jesus goes further by urging his followers to relinquish relinquish their rights to the robe, which would have had all sorts of comforts and provisions in that moment. What Jesus is, and this is again, if turning the other cheek, taking a backhanded slap on the right cheek, and then returning it with the other cheek is jaw-dropping in this moment, what Jesus is actually doing here with the robe is he is proclaiming to the people to strip in front of the person as a means of exhibiting radical distance from social custom. For you to, for this type of teaching, for Jesus to say, not just give your shirt, but your robe, was like an image in that time and space that people would not have been able to wrap their mind around. It was so subversive. So you have the slap, you have the robe. Then he goes on and says this, if anyone forces you to go one mile, what do you do? Roman soldiers had the the legal right in that day, especially if you were Jewish. uh, Roman soldiers had the legal right to put citizens, um, they were over to work as an aid in the Roman military. And what this did is it actually created space where you would just kind of be living your life And a Roman soldier could stop you in the empire and basically get you to carry things or participate. Roman soldiers approach, you know, would often approach even Jesus' followers, demanding them to carry something a mile. And Jesus' expectation for them was actually to go beyond the expectation. And you help with two miles. You take on yourself and you go farther. So you have the slap, you have the cloak, you have this picture of going the extra mile. And then the fourth example is this. Jesus says, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And Jesus here subverts the cultural norm by creating a system of grace, of compassion, of love. That there's this picture of what one theologian calls the ethic from above, No more lex talionis, no more retribution, no more retaliation. This way of Jesus, this prince of peace is calling on his followers in his way to live out the way of peace, of restoration. Now, here's the beautiful thing about all of this, those four examples. Here's what it does. It's not just, here's what we do. We say, okay, like, we just give kind of commands, we kind of give directives, do this, don't do this, right? This is kind of the way, at least with my kids and stuff, I think about my own, just don't do that, do this, don't do this, right? And sometimes we lose out on these moments, and I think Jesus actually embodies this in his teaching. He, what is he doing here? He is subverting the power of the empire. And he's actually doing it creatively with these examples. So he's not just saying, okay, guys, everybody, let's be nonviolent. Let's be people of peace. He's giving actual physical examples to them in their mind and space in the teaching of how to live this out. The power is subverted. So here's the thing. When I let you slap me on the cheek and take my coat and go the extra mile, How much power do you have over me? Right? Think about it. This is what Jesus is doing. When we relinquish our rights and our power, this is what blew up the church in the first century, by the way, because they were afraid to die. They weren't, sorry, excuse me, they were not afraid to die. Right? If you even study the history of the early church, this what are you gonna do? Kill us? Like it was, this is what it was like. What are you gonna do? Take our lives? We have nothing to hold back. And in Jesus' teaching on peace and non-resistance, it's subverting the power. If I let you slap me on the other cheek, I let you take my coat, go the extra mile, how much more power do you have over me? Now, some of you, this great, right? Because we're North Americans and we are the epicenter of the world. Am I right? Am I right? And we just feel this. I just want to say that this is not as much passive, I'm not calling, and I don't think Jesus is calling for passivity, as it is creative. If you look at each of the examples in which th- this is encountered and the way of peace is encountered, it's creative. It's a way in which it's not just monolithic, it's a way in which creatively Jesus followers respond to power and violence around them. Some of you guys know in 2006 there was a gunman who went into Lancaster County in Pennsylvania. Went into a small um, Amish schoolhouse and went in and took the lives of five people, basically lined children up. Five people, I think uh, one teacher as well. Kids and a teacher were killed. Five were injured. And this rattled things, right? This peaceful little community just kind of trying to live out what they're trying to live out. And um, a crazed gunman comes in and does this. And you know, it's fascinating if you know the story, that the community there in their grieving, instead of throwing insults and getting, trying to get caught in the milieu of media that had all sorts of things to say, they began to care for the gunman's wife and children, right? This is not her fault, And this community came uh, around this family, the one that took their very children in what should have been the safest place for them in a a little schoolhouse. See, this is the type of way in which we're called. Even deeper, what Jesus is giving as examples here for non-resistance you know, some of us—we the, the, again—I I feel the—you t- feel the tension. You feel where it lies. Can anybody really do this, right? Can anybody live taking the extra, you know, turning the extra t- cheek and giving the cloak and walking the extra mile? Can can we really do this? Well, I think Jesus has something to say to this, and I know we're not Jesus. I get that, but we do have His Spirit. And Jesus was beaten. Merry Christmas, right? He was stripped naked. He walked across to his death. And ultimately, he gave without getting in return. The Prince of Peace, the Prince of Restoration. It's not like, I wonder how we live this out, right? Like, it's not like we have a God somewhere writing to us saying, you know, you should really do this, but didn't give us an example. We feel it in our bones because the Spirit of God is in us the peace, the prince of restoration, and now we become these people that live in light of this peace. Jesus goes on and says this, look at verse 43, he says this, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That, brothers and sisters, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you as a sign that you are children of heaven. Now, Leviticus 19.18 says love your neighbor, but it was implied within like the, the kind of framework in the interpretation of the law that sure, you love your neighbor because of the Jewish community who was their neighbor, those in the commonwealth, those that were kind of in their community, and it was kind of implied by many of the contemporaries of the day that you hate your enemy, right? You love your neighbor, but your enemy you hate. Neighbor tended to be understood as the the fellow Jews, the commonwealth, and yet Jesus flips this whole idea of hate on its head and he asks his followers to actually pray for those who persecute you. Put on display. So he gives us examples and then this instruction that his interpretation of the law is the very thing that we embody. We pray for those who persecute us. We love our enemies, a draw-dropping reality brought to the people. And so Matthew 5 earlier on, you know, it says in these beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers for what? They are called what? Children of God. So in all the, all the talk and all the lingo of like, this is what we should become, I think Jesus has always embodied a, a way in which we, people know who we are, they know that we're children of God, and we ultimately know that we're children of God, because we're people of peace. We join in on this restoration. Fascinating that if you, again, read through Acts, and you look at how the early churches started... They would, it seemed like Paul always went to cities and these these people and apostles would go to cities to start these little churches. And what did they look for? This isn't actually in the language. They would go and they would look for people of peace. Because in a culture, in the reality of the day, of violence and the empire, Paul would go and try and discern who are these people of peace. And in the reality of Jesus, the evil person actually is the one that becomes our neighbor which is hard, right? So I always say this. um, I know different denominations and movements and churches kind of take on different postures and um, somehow we like to categorize things, especially a couple thousand years later where we have all sorts of denominations and networks and movements, but I'll I'll just say that nonviolence and enemy love is not exclusively an Anabaptist thing as much as the Holy Spirit is not a, a Pentecostal thing or good theology is a Baptist kind of reform thing, or Eucharist and communion is an Anglican thing, right? We kind of, we categorize, okay, like the Pentecostals, they've got the spirit. You know, the Anglicans, they've got communion and church tradition. The Anabaptists, they're the nonviolent ones, right? All of this, this is what I lobby for, is embodied in the life of someone who follows Jesus. And I, I love Jesus, and I'm confronted on Advent too with peace and it is this work in my own life, it does make me suspicious of violence. It really does. In a world that is violent, it makes me very, very suspicious. The question I ask, maybe I'll ask it for myself, and you can pose it for yourself if you want, is can I carry a cross and a gun at the same time? You know, I believe in the kingdom of God, And one of the images we get is we trade our swords for plowshares in this eternal kingdom. As we look at even the hope candle and as these candles are lit each week, it is a reminder to us of we are headed somewhere and that is an entirely renewed world. And so we do everything in our power to live peacefully. We live in a violent culture and we know, and I don't know if you know this, violent cultures, get, we beget what be, we beget, right? We get what we get. Violence produces violence, and the hope is on Peace Sunday, that as God's people embody peace, that peace would beget peace for us. And so we're confronted a little with Jesus' teachings here because of what goes on around us. I get there's all sorts of layers to this, more than what we could ever cover in a morning like this this morning. But the reality is Jesus is the Prince of Restoration. And our call is to live creatively, like he's called in his teaching here, to follow him with non-resistant love. This is what it means. All the talk about Christians and our failings right now in the moment, and there's lots of them, don't, don't get me wrong. This is the one thing that we embody, that this is the one thing, hopefully, that puts on display God's, God's work in us. Stanley Hauerwas, he'd say it like this. He says, it's very small in my notes here for some reason, so I'm going to blow it up to 20, 20-point 20 font. Is that okay? Just on the fly. Man, pretty talented, eh? All right. He says, Christians are called to nonviolence, not because we believe that nonviolence is a strategy to rid the world of war, but... In a world of war, as faithful followers of Jesus, we cannot imagine being anything other than nonviolent. And that will make the world possibly more violent because the world does not want the order it calls peace exposed as the violence it so oftentimes is. Love that. Now, learning how to wait as a people of nonviolence in a world of war, you'll know what Advent is. Because Advent is patience. It is how God has made us the people of promise in a world of impatience. And Christ has made that possibility for us to live patiently in a world of impatience. Love that what will make the world possibly more violent because the world does not want the order it calls peace exposed as the violence it so often is at times, that we are these people that embody peace. And I get it. I feel like maybe the tension in the room is, oh, here's the, here's the hippie kind of liberals, right? The nonviolent, you know, people. That, that's, I just want all of us to just wrestle with the reality of Jesus' teachings and what this means for us. And so as we walk the way to the bread and cup this morning, it's a call to peace. It's a call to living into the restoration and reconciliation that Jesus brings. And my prayer would be is as we let, and I know it's prepackaged, right? The bread, like the cracker and the, the, the juice hit our taste buds. It would be a reminder for us as these guys lead us and as we sing together That Jesus is peace. This is what he's calling us to. What he's calling us to embody. His presence. Jesus didn't leave us at a distance. He embodied himself. He gave himself to us. Let me pray for us. King Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. And again, I thank you, God, that it's not just a deity shouting things from a distance for us. You gave us examples. Real life stuff. In a world that's so upside down, we thank you that we come to a space like this. We look at these candles as a reminder of an alternative way, a different way. The way of life. The, the, the way from above in a world that seeks justice, which can be good, but seeks retribution at times, retaliation. We are these people that, God, want to put on display your love to the world. And so as we walk the, the path here even to take the bread and cup, may it be a reminder that in our story, you gave to the very end. You gave yourself in and amongst the oppression and the empire. You put your life on display. So we celebrate that this morning. Jesus' name, Jesus' name. Why don't you stand with me, brothers and sisters? The table is open. The team is gonna lead us. If uh, you're just joining us, maybe for the first time, there's a table. You can come, take communion. Let's take it with haste this morning and all that Jesus has done. uh, You guys lead us. Let's sing together.